your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Now, I don't want to upset anybody with this illustration, so I want it just to, the, the caveat is I'm not calling myself fat with this illustration. However, I have struggled with my weight my whole life, and uh, my, big, my biggest all-time high was 265, 270 in that time, in that frame. And so if, you've, if that's you, you know what it's like where you, know, you lose 10 pounds, gain 10 pounds, lose 10 pounds, gain 10 pounds, and it's this constant struggle back and forth. And a number of years ago, I noticed people in our church in Pennsylvania started losing weight. And you know how you talk. You say, hey, how, what, what are you doing? And discovered there's this lady, and she had this thing called the personalized eating plan. And so I went to see her, and I got to say that she changed my life. Um, the information that she gave me there in my late 20s really to this day is with me, and while I'm not exactly on the plan any longer, I still, it's changed the way that I think, it's changed the way that I perceive food, and this is not just a diet thing, I'm, this is an illustration, I'm going somewhere with this. So she did a couple of things with me that was really amazing, and uh, the first thing was, she said, uh, she actually complimented me on the things that I was doing right. She said, so tell me, what are you doing? I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm exercising, I'm low-fat diet, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And she's like, that's great, you're doing great, that's terrific stuff. And then she told me, music to my ears. It was, you know, you might not be eating enough. Really? Say more. And she tells me, you know, she explains then the third thing, that that basically she changed the way that I thought about my body. She said, you got to see your body as like a furnace. So you got to feed the furnace to keep the fire burning, to keep the metabolism going. You stop feeding it, the metabolism dies. Feed it, the metabolism goes up. And you got to feed it, of course, the right kind of wood, so to speak, and keep that fire burning. That little word picture is still with me. I look at every plate of food that way as feeding the furnace and keeping the metabolism going, and putting the right thing in in order to keep the fire going well. And then, and then she sat down with me, and she said, okay, so um, let's set a goal. How much do you want to lose? They all do that. Weight loss coaches do. So I'm like, well, I don't know, 65, 70 pounds or so, I guess. So, okay, so that's the goal. Great. Let's, let's put that together. And then we put together a plan. Here's the plan for accomplishing that. And then she put me in community. And we already had a group of people in our church that were on the same plan. And that was kind of fun to have people that you're working together with on and compare notes and so forth. What she did regarding my weight is exactly what God does with you and me regarding changing our lives when it comes to sin, setting us free from sin. We've been in this study in Romans for a little while, and we've discovered, actually, that God actually is following the, this plan. It's sort of, go back, here's how it starts. God says, let's begin here, let's lose the shame. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's now, therefore, no what? Condemnation. condemnation. We've said it before. 
I like it. Some days you win the battle, some days you lose the battle, but there's never a day that you're condemned if you're in Christ Jesus. So God takes that shame off the table because shame is a really bad motivator. I mean, you feel bad for a little bit, but nobody's life was ever changed because they felt ashamed. And so God says, let's remove that. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid for that. We just celebrated that. Now you know how to, shame's gone. And then what else does God do? God says, let me give you a new identity. Okay, you're my child. We looked at that last week in Romans chapter 8. We've been given a spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father, he's my dad. I'm his son. You're his daughter. He's your Father, we're in this family. Jesus is our brother. I mean, it's, it's glorious. It's amazing. God gives us a new identity. And then God says, now you got to change the way you think. At the, we saw that last week in Romans chapter 8. Didn't we? That the mind, it says, set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. God's like, let's change the way you think. you got to think about this differently. And we've been saying it this way, that I need to change the way that I see sin. Sin is no longer just that fun thing that I'm not allowed to do anymore, but sin is actually a threat to my very existence. And so let's, let's start getting a right perspective on this so that I can deal with it properly. And the other thing that I, I change my thinking on is that pleasing God is actually pleasing to me. I mean, it pleases God, yes, but it's also pleasing to me. I like to think of it in the sense, you have those, those days, man, where you just work a good hard day. You know what I mean. You had a good, solid, hard day of work in. How does it feel going to bed that night? It's like, whoo. You just collapse into bed. You know, you know you gave it your all. It was a good day. Pleasing God, same sort of experience. Pleasing God is actually pleasing to me to know Oh, I did it. So change the way that I think. And then, fourth, I got to set the goal. I got to know where I'm going. And that's actually what we're going to look at today in Romans chapter 8. We're going to set the goal today. Does that make sense? We're going to find out how much weight you're going to lose. To use, the, uh, to use that analogy, if I can keep that going. That's the goal today. We're looking at the goal. And then step five is the plan. Here's what we've got to actually do to get there. And maybe if you're like me, I confess I've been a little frustrated, honestly, in this study because I feel like we've not gotten super practical. And there's a part of me that says, okay, I know I need to change. How do I change? How? Get me to the how. And the truth is we're getting there. But we're in a book study. We're studying the whole book of Romans, and that's coming in chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, and we're still in 8. So good news is it's coming, but we got a couple more chapters to go. And we'll get to the plan, I promise. And then the end part is community. He puts us in support and community where we're working together. That's Romans chapter 16, and we're getting there too. So today we're talking about the goal. What, how much weight you want to lose? Where are we going with this? And that's Romans chapter 8. Let me read verses 18 to 30. He says, I consider that our, our present sufferings are not worth comparing 
with the glory that will be revealed in us. You starting to get a hint for where we're going? He's pointing us forward. There's a glory coming. So for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, you are in the middle of the world's most important yet incomplete project. You. You're the project. You are the world's most important and incomplete project. But good news is this. God is fully committed to getting you done. The God of the universe is fully committed. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it puts it this way. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he starts. And God has started something really amazing in you, and you can be guaranteed that God's going to finish it. God is working hard, and he will use everything and anything to make that happen. Now, I don't believe that God, personally, I don't believe that God causes uh, pain. No, I don't believe he causes it, but I do believe he'll use it. I believe that he won't waste it. We, we live in a world that's kind of fallen and broken, not kind of, it is fallen and broken, and we're going to see in a moment that's basically our fault. But God's going to use anything in this in order to get you and me done. He, if that's what he's got to work with, he'll use it. If pain is what it takes, eh, God's okay with it. Verse 28 tells us this, in all things, you see verse 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, that's not saying that all things are good. It just says, in all things, God works for the good. 
So God's going to use it to get you done, if that's what he needs to do. God's commitment to your maturity is absolutely unwavering. The finished product of you is going to be amazing. But between here and there, there are a lot of bumps in the road. Anybody got the bumps? Yeah, I got the bumps. I got the bruises too. You know that feeling that you have if you're a parent? You know that feeling that you have that sometimes you wonder if you're, if you're ruining your kid? Every good parent has that feeling sometimes. You just do because you just think, oh, Lord, I, am I doing what's right by this kid? And Because you want to bless him. You don't want to hurt him. And yet some days you just, you know that feeling? God never has that feeling. God knows what he's doing, and he never doubts himself with you. There's never a moment that God goes, I hope I didn't ruin that with Keith. I hope that was the right thing to do for Keith. God never has that question. He's absolutely positive that what he's doing in your life and for your life is exactly what he needs to do, and it's going to accomplish the end that he's seeking to accomplish. God is faithful, and God's faithfulness to you is not a reward of your obedience. It's not like because you're such a good person, God's faithful to you. No, God's faithful because that's who he is, and God is going, he's committed to being faithful to you. It's just part of his nature. But here's the deal with God's faithfulness. Whenever you're faithless, God's faithfulness, you don't appreciate it. Because you want God to be not as committed. You want God to be as committed to you as you are to him. When you're rebellious. Like, God, I want some time off for bad behavior. I'd like you to look the other way for now. And God goes, uh, nope, I'm faithful. And then we buck against it. His faithfulness is kind of like a fence sometimes. It locks us in. And we wish so badly that God, in our rebellion sometimes, we wish so badly that God would be as faithless as we are. And God says, no, I can't do that. I'm faithful. I'm sticking with you through this. I'm holding you together in this. God's 100% committed to us. It's just who he is. Psalms 138 verse 8 It says this, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Do you catch the determination of God? Are you hearing that in this? I hope so, because that's how we're starting here. You've got to catch that. God is determined. He will fulfill his purpose for you. What is his purpose? Romans 8, verse 28 tells us that. Verse 29, rather, tells us that. For those God foreknew... God makes it crystal clear. God's laying this. Remember the goal? What's your goal? How much weight are you going to lose? Here's the goal. God says, here it is. I have predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What's God's goal for you? To make you just like Jesus. And he is committed to that process. Now, God predestined you. That's a fancy word. Theologically, it means something. Philosophically, it means something. I don't have time to get into that today. But practically, what it means is this. God is determined to make you like Jesus. It's your destiny. 
God is committed to getting you there. And you say, yeah, well, what if I don't want to be like Jesus? It just means you don't know Jesus. Because, man, you get one little glimpse of who Jesus is, and I'm telling you, you'll sell everything to be like Jesus. He's that awesome. He's that glorious. He's that breathtaking. If you capture this, friend, get a hold of this. What God is attempting to do in your life is breathtaking, and words can't even begin to describe it. The glory that's prepared for you, friend, it's impossible for you to overestimate the breathtaking glory that God has in store for you. And so Paul says here in verse 18, the chapter we were reading here, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You, you see his words there? He's like, it's just, don't even waste your breath. I mean, we're going to do it here for a second. But in essence, he's saying, it's not even worth comparing. The, thing, the bumps, the bruises, the, the hits you take here, the suffering you got, it's just not even worth comparing the glory that awaits you. Financially speaking, it's a cost and benefit analysis. The cost is X, the Y is, or the, the benefit is Y. And when you compare the two, you say, well, if I pay for that and I get that, oh, well, that's worth the price. It's, the, it's why I don't drive a Tesla. Because for me, spending 90 grand on a car to save the environment is not worth it. And I don't have 90 grand. I mean, that's a little detail that I want to throw in there. You know, but it's a cost-benefit analysis. You weigh it out, you go, ah, I can't afford that. Not going to do it. He says the same with our suffering. The Bible says it. Let's look at your day-to-day -day struggles. Let's look at this day-to-day -day battle that you have where you're fighting against this temptation and this sin and these struggles, these things you're trying to change and you're wrestling with them. Okay, you look at that. That's not even worth comparing to this. And when you realize the benefit that you're going to receive, man, whew, it certainly encourages you to stay along the way. I heard it said this way a while ago. It says that for the person who doesn't know Jesus, this world is the best that it's going to get. But if you know Jesus, this world is as bad as it's going to get. Your worst day here doesn't even compare to what it is that you will have one day. And speaking of the world, the text gets into that next. Verse 19, verse 19 says that creation, the world, that, that it, it waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, creation knows who you are more than you do waits in eager expectation for you to be revealed. Why? Verse 20 says, because creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So here's what happened. God made the world, and then he made you and me, and he gave us dominion over created order. 
he told Adam and Eve to rule the earth and subdue it in Genesis chapter 1. It's part of the divine mandate that's been given to you and to me to rule over. We have dominion over creation. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, when humanity, when people sinned, we actually brought creation down with us. And, and I, I believe one of the thoughts behind this is that in order for God to maintain the proper order in creation, creation had to take a pay cut. So if you think about it, like Adam, you know, we were here and creation was under us, and then Adam and Eve sinned. And so God said, well, creation has to go here in order to keep the order proper. And now we're all... You know, we're all pecking like chickens when God created us to fly like eagles. You know, we're sort of doing that, to use that old picture. And, and, and what he's saying is, what he's saying is creation is kind of a victim of our sin. And, or let's say it this way. You know that feeling that you have uh, when you see the mountains or you see a beautiful sunrise or some of you a sunset, some of you have never seen the sunrise, uh, or sunset, <laughs> some of us, you know, you see that beautiful thing, it's just gorgeous, and, or you're standing on the edge of the ocean, and you see the water, and you know, the ocean is so magnificent, isn't it? You feel so small, and it's just such a, a breathtaking kind of place, but you know that feeling that you have where this creation that we live in is awesome. Do you understand that it would be more awesome if you hadn't sinned? Do you understand that as awesome and grand as creation is, that what you're experiencing is the limited version? You're not experiencing creation as God intended it to be. You're experiencing creation that's been limited and held back by your own sin and mine. I mean, all of us. I'm not, you, you know, you personally aren't responsible for bringing the whole world down. You get that, right? We're all in this boat. I hope you see you plural is what I'm saying. It's, it's creations, you're looking at the limited version. And there's more to creation than our present experience, and there's more to you than your present experience. And all of creation is kind of waiting for us to get it. In a sense, okay, you don't want to take this too far because it's not at all suggesting that creation is a person or that somehow, you know, Mother Earth is crying. That's not what this is saying at all. However, Paul is sort of giving Earth and creation a persona. He's kind of, what's the word? Anthropom the, the word is anthropomorphism, right? When you take something that's inanimate and you give it a human characteristic... And that's kind of what is happening here. You know, the earth is not a person. It's rock, dirt, water, carbon, etc. But if the earth could speak, that's what he's saying. If the earth could speak, if the rocks could cry out, they would say, come on, people. We're aching here. In other words, in other words, your battle against sin and my battle against sin is bigger. We have to see that. It's bigger than just me. It's bigger than just having that drink. It's bigger than just looking at a dirty picture. It's bigger than you having an angry outburst or lying or being rebellious towards your parents. It's, it's bigger 
than that. Because your fight against sin is this battle of epic proportions with eternal consequences. And if you get down by the ocean, you get quiet, our text is kind of saying, you listen, you listen, you can almost hear the world crying out for you to get it right. Because the sooner you're like Jesus, the sooner the world can realize its fullest potential. The whole thing has been sucked down and minimized by our sin. So creation, the Bible tells us, is groaning. It's groaning. And, And verse 23 says that you and I who have the first fruits, look at this, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. So creation's groaning and we're groaning. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're groaning. He says, we have the first fruit. That's what that verse says. This is a picture that is taken from the Old Testament and brought into this passage. And back in the Old Testament times, in the ancient times, they brought the first fruits of their harvest to the temple in the fall, whenever they bring the harvest in, and it was literally fruit. Literally, here's a, ba- here's a basket of wheat, here's a bushel of barley, here's a basket of whatever it was. It was literally fruit. And the idea was, I, I give the first 10% of this harvest to God. And it's indicative that the rest of it belongs to him as well. And the idea was that God blesses this 10% and then God blesses the other 90 and, and we do the same thing today in our offering today. I gave, I gave my tithe to the Lord today. We got paid this week. I gave the first 10% of my income. We gave it to the Lord today. It's, it's not a basket of fruit. It's, it's a check. We kind of modernized the process a little bit. But the concept is still exactly the same. The first fruits of what I give, I, of what I earn, I give to the Lord And he says, this first fruit, now he says, for you and me, God's given us a first fruit. And it's the Holy Spirit. He he has given himself to you as the first fruit of something that is coming that's even greater. The first fruit is a picture of something that's even greater. Now try to wrap your brain around that one. Honestly, mine starts to sizzle and fry. When I think about it, that God himself is the, is the first fruit. If God is the first fruit, what is the other 90? I think that at this point we begin to struggle, and I think you're sensing that in my own words today. Our words fall short. I, I, we, we need what that first song said today. We need God to open up the heavens because I've got to somehow see this because it goes beyond our ability to express it into words. But the truth is I have the first fruits of the Spirit, which means that God promises that the rest is also mine. But between now and then, I'm groaning and I'm waiting and I'm patient and I'm, come on, God. Do you understand that God himself lives in you? And that means this, you can never again say, I'm only human. All of the awesomeness of the God of the universe is working within you to bring you to completion. Remember, we've been saying it, God's committed. 
he's pretty committed to this process, don't you think? You getting that sense? God's pretty committed to making you what you're supposed to be. He's, he's sold out to this. And, and whoa. So this, my friend, is the motive, I think, for why we must deal with sin as ruthlessly as we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. I feel it, man. My neck hurts today. It's wasting. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what we see, but on the unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, these troubles, light and momentary difficulties, these bumps, temporary. But what is not seen, that's eternal. That's what I'm aiming for. That's what I'm aiming for. Let's repeat it. It's worth saying we need to change the way that we see sin. Sin is not that fun thing I'm not allowed to do anymore. No, that's, if that's all the more I see it as, I'm going to continue to struggle with it. But if I begin to see it as a complete threat to my very existence, that this thing is a thief and it's stealing that glory that I've got, now, now I've got some fight put in me because I don't want that ripping me off. Do you? I don't want to get ripped off. So no. Let's get real, though. Sometimes, sometimes we're not defeated. We're just disobedient. Sometimes what I claim to be a defeat is just really me being disobedient. And I, I need to understand the difference between the two. Don't confuse them. Because if I'm disobedient, that's a choice that I've made that got me into that mess. And I need to make a choice to get me out. I'm not defeated. I'm just disobedient sometimes. Can I be honest? I think most of the time in my life, I'm disobedient. Honestly. I would like to think that I'm more of a victim. That makes me feel better. But I'm actually not. Truth be told. The first step to victory is this decision that I make. And I want to encourage you to make it today. You've got to make this decision, friend, to serve Jesus unconditionally. That's the decision that you got to make today. I don't know how else to say it. you got to sell out to Jesus. you got to. You can't do the fence. You can't dance on the fence because that's just going to, that's a lie. You can't even do it, actually. We think we can. We think I can keep one foot here and one foot there, and that's part of the lie of hell. The truth is, if you're thinking that you're doing that, really, you're standing in hell. There's only one way. There's only one way. And that's I sell everything. I sell out for Jesus. That's it. Um, and I've got to start taking this sin problem super seriously. Deal with it ruthlessly, violently even if I have to. A number of years ago in our church, in this church, uh, we had a gentleman who um, was a, uh, had a very important job in the state of Connecticut working in the mental health um, field. And he was on the governor's task force. He was on the governor's, like, a hotline. He talked to the governor all the time. And he was just a really important guy in this whole realm, in the mental health realm in the state of Connecticut. 
And then he gave his heart to Jesus. And I remember that day. Uh, I had the honor of being there when he gave his life to Christ. And his life was dramatically transformed and changed. And, uh, and after a few months of walking with Jesus, he actually quit his job with the state uh, because there was a woman there with whom he was working that his relationship was not exactly pure. And he couldn't ask her to quit, <laughs> so he quit. And he uh, quit his job, and then he went to work for Big Y bagging groceries. It's not an exaggeration. Literally, he bagged groceries at Big Y. And if you look at that on the surface, if you look at that in the, you know, in the natural, you would say, what a fool. Why would you do that? You're this big, important guy, and now you're bagging groceries at Big Y? You've got a Ph.D. bagging groceries? What, what is that all about? Right. That's how the flesh would look at it. But in the spirit, when you begin to recognize that these struggles here are not worth comparing with the glory that I have coming ahead of me, you understand it's not much of a trade-off when you think of it like that. And this brother made that trade. And I honor him and respect him for it. And let me just say the story ends. Uh, I mean, he's still, he's still a good friend. Bless him. And uh, he's now a big wig at Hartford Hospital doing stuff. So, you know, it's, he didn't bag groceries forever. It was a temporary, <laughs> temporary stop. The point is this. I got to deal with this sin problem ruthlessly. Because it's not just the fun thing I can't do anymore. It's actually ruining my life. And therefore, I must make serious decisions to deal with it. I don't play with it. I don't entertain it. I don't make excuses for it. Why? Because I'm working for something so much better. It's that cost-benefit analysis thing that we're constantly doing. I, this cost is, it, it's, that benefit is worth this cost for sure. I can let it go. Some days, some days it gets long. You feel that way? That's why we wait patiently, as the verse says. We wait patiently. We're waiting for that day. We kind of live in that gap between God's promise and God's payout. And sometimes in that gap, boy, we get really tired in the wait. This might sound kind of weird and Please forgive me if it's weird to you. I, I don't want to weird you out. Uh, but this really is the way that I think uh, about this. So I'm just sharing something personal with you. Um, oh, no, I got ahead of myself. Not yet. Wait, the weird thing's coming. Okay? First, <laughs> stop. Go back. That's why notes are great. So this might sound, this, now this might sound kind of weird too but probably less weird than the next one. Here's this one. It's this. Are you with me? The, the weirdness is this. Error, God's less concerned with your error than he is with your apathy. Error is something that's fairly simple to correct. If you're humble and you're teachable and you're willing to learn, you're going to make mistakes. And, and you might have some pain with those mistakes, but, you know, you're going to learn from it, and it'll be okay. Error is pretty simple to correct. Apathy, 
Apathy is like a dark spiritual condition, and there's only one way to correct it, and that's with a severe amount of pain. There's no other way to do it. Uh, apathy is this thing that's got to be disciplined out. It's got to be. Um, we've got to be shaken out of our stupor. We just sang that song this morning, and I love that. I kind of chuckle at it because the, the juxtaposition of the music with the message to me just is sort of funny because the, the music is this sweet, surrender my heart. You know, this sweet little song. But the words of that song, my friend, you're asking for, you're asking for a shakeup in that song. Holy Spirit. Wake me up, Holy Spirit. Wake me up. Okay. He rocks us to get us out of sleep. You know, you know that DUI you got that puts you in jail? Maybe it's why your wife found that website that you were looking at. Maybe it's why you got fired from that job. Maybe it's why your parents saw that text. It's kind of like God put some firecrackers in your undies. <laughs> you got to wake up. And instead of getting mad at the cops, instead of getting mad at your boss, instead of blaming your wife, instead of blaming somebody else, you might want to stop here first. Lord, what do I need to do to change? Thank God for the firecracker in the undies. He loves you enough to do that. But you'll never experience the benefit of it as long as you keep blaming everybody else for the problems you're experiencing. As long as you think it's everybody else's problem and not yours. No, start taking responsibility. God, what must I do to change this? we got to stop this right here. This path ends right now. God knows that in making us to wait, that it will grow us. There's something in this. But he also knows that it's a risk. The risk of making you and me wait is we grow apathetic. But I guess God's willing to take the risk of making us apathetic in order to do something else in us. Because God knows what he's doing. We've said that, haven't we? We get tired. We lose sight of the goal. I remember it was a few weeks ago, Carissa and I were driving to Ohio to see our son, Caston, and we were driving back, and it made me chuckle because on Interstate 80, when you cross the Ohio-Pennsylvania line on Interstate 80, it, there's a sign for New York City. Now, if you think New York City, that's like 500 miles away. I think that's the goofiest sign. Why do you need to tell me that now? But they do. There it is. And so if you're driving on I-80 and you think, oh, hey, New York City, we're almost there. <laughs> yeah. Right. You got a long ways to go. And then you come down 80 where we take 81 North and come up to come to Connecticut, you know. There's, there's another New York City sign right there. And if you say, oh, we're, we're getting closer. We're almost to New York City. Let's stay on I-80 right now. <laughs> no, it's still a long ways away. You know, this is, what we're, this, this is what you and I are up against. God says, here's the glory that I have prepared for you. It's awesome. And we get, we're like, yeah, sign me up. Excellent. Almost there. And God says, yeah, no, not quite. There's a few more miles we got to go here. 
And in that wait, oh, we can get apathetic and we can think, oh. but you understand something? It's worth the struggle. It's worth the wait. And, and here comes verse 26 with the encouragement. God gives you a, uh, God gives you somebody riding shotgun, if you will. I really want him driving. But verse 26 says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And it says that he's praying for us. In the same way, what does that mean? In the same way that creation is groaning, follow the text. We're not going to make something up here. In the same way that creation is groaning, waiting for us to get it. In the same way that you're groaning, waiting for that glory. In that same way, the Holy Spirit is with you in your weakness as you're taking that long journey. And, and it says he's cheering for you, he's praying for you in this thing. Now, I don't confess to even begin to understand how God can pray to God. I don't get how the Holy Spirit can pray to himself. I don't. However, I got to think it's good. I got to think that if God's praying for me, he knows what he's praying about, and it's going to be good. And I want whatever it is he's praying for. Amen? You want what God's praying for? I want it. So listen, part of the reason why you struggle, part of the reason why you're not satisfied, part of the reason why the journey feels long some days is frankly because you're not made for this world. You're just not. The longing that you feel is a longing for home. And there's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy you like that will. And sin is always going to try to get you to satisfy that longing in some cheaper way. And you're going to find, you. we all know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And so why not learn to live with the longing? Why not recognize the itch is normal? And, I'm just, and it's just not going to get scratched this side of heaven. It's just not. So I've learned to live with the itch, and I learned to love Jesus with that. Somehow it's how I demonstrate my love for Jesus by allowing that longing to stay there and just waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, this is the one that you might think is weird. When, uh, but it is really genuinely how I think. Um, you know, when Karis and I were engaged to be married, we were really looking forward to consummating our marriage. I mean, don't judge us. We were young. You know that feeling. I'm not going to lie. If you use the King James, if you use the King James version to quote King James, we were burning. That's how the King James puts it. We were burning. We know the burning feeling, right? And uh, looking forward to the wedding day. But you know, in a very practical way, very practical way, that burning and that waiting was how we demonstrated love. It, it was actually an act of love to wait. And, and so now here's the weird part some of you might find. Jesus wants to marry us. The Bible tells us that. He plans on that. And, and so we're his bride. And right now we're kind of in pre-marriage counseling, if you will. And we're certainly getting prepared for that great day. And, and so, catch this. 
Jesus is longing for you. Jesus has the same ache. He wants you as bad as you want him. And you know he's faithful. He's not going for some cheap thrill. He's actually saving himself for you. And he's asking you to do the same. So when you have that longing, you have that like, God, there's nothing in this earth that's really, this is, well, why do I have this longing? Why do I feel incomplete? Why do I feel that way? Well, because you're not home yet. And the way that you demonstrate your love for Jesus is by remaining faithful to him, despite the fact that you feel incomplete. I'm, I'm waiting, Jesus. And I'm not going to sell out in this relationship for a cheap thrill. Does this make sense? Some days when I'm, some days, man, I'm driving in my truck, and, and you know, some days the temptation to sin is super intense, right? Some days, I don't know why, some days it's more intense than others, but it is. Isn't that your experience? And on those days when I'm really intense and it's consuming my thoughts, I'll be driving in my truck and just groaning sometimes under the weight of it. Like, God, God, no, no, I was made for something better. No. If people saw me driving, talking to myself, they'd probably think that's a crazy guy talking to himself in his truck. And I'm just, we fight, we wait, and it's how we show love. That's how I demonstrate my love for Jesus. When I do this, I'm agreeing with the process that I find in verse 30. And it will end here today. Verse 30 gives us the process. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what that means is this. Those he predestined, God started way back here before the beginning of time. We don't even know when he started, but it was, he thought of you before he made the world. And he predestined you before he made the world. That's what the Bible tells us. And so before he made the world, he thought of you and he was planning and anticipating this relationship with you. That's, that's what it means to be predestined. He saw that. And then on the day that you were born, the day that you were born, there was nobody more excited on the day you were born than God because nobody waited longer for you to be born than God did. Do you understand? He predestined you all the way back here before time. He saw you, and so when you were born, he's like, yes, you're here, finally. He's so excited that you are finally on the scene. And what he does with you is he constantly calls you. Hey, calls your name, calls. Now, you know what a lot of people... A lot of people ignore the call, leave the phone off the hook. Don't do that. The God of the universe, God of the universe wants you. Mm. The God of the universe has this dream for you, and it's breathtakingly awesome. Some of us, many of us in this room, I trust, have answered the call. If you've not answered the call, I want to encourage you this morning, don't leave until you do. Don't. Don't leave until you begin a relationship with Jesus. Would you just today before you leave say, oh, Jesus, I want to get started with you. Yes, Lord, yes, I'm in. Sign me up. Answer the call. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you know what he does? We talked about this from Romans chapter 5. Remember, he justifies you, which means he, 
which means you have a debt against God, and he zeroes out the balance. He pays the debt, and he brings it to zero, which effectively gives you a redo, a fresh start. But then not only that, not only does he justify, you see the fourth step glorifies you. And if justification means that he puts money in the bank and, and he brings it back up to zero to pay the debt, glorified means God writes you a check. Here's some spending money for the trip. And he puts money in the account. See, that's what God's doing in your life. He predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he glorifies you. Okay, now that might be inspirational. It's great. I got great glory coming going to be awesome. But what practically of this? What do we do? Let me just end with a couple of practical things, okay? And then that's it, real, real fast. The first one is this. I don't want to discourage you, but you need to let go of the expectation that God's going to magically remove your desire. And the, one of the lies of the devil is to make you think that God hasn't gotten rid of the desire because God doesn't care. And so God's just leaving you hanging. And that's not true at all. No, remember God created you with that desire. That desire and that longing simply means you weren't meant for this world. And the more you, and you wait and you let Jesus fill that desire and meet that, and it's how you demonstrate your love for him, you have to get rid of the expectation that God's going to magically remove it. Um, and that'll actually give you strength to deal with it. Second is you got to call it sin. That's really important. We've said that before. Why do we have to call it sin? Why? Well, because God doesn't forgive your excuses. But he does forgive your sin. He's very gracious with our sin. And, and when I understand that the shame has been removed, as we've talked about, really, why do I, why do I have to sugarcoat it you, there's no need to sugarcoat it anymore friends just call what it is it's ugly you know it God knows it and he's made provision to forgive it okay so call it a sin and ask him to forgive you and he will and then third begin to see your sin as trading down every sin every temptation to sin is exactly that You've been given this glory, and the temptation to sin is trying to get you to trade that for something far less. And so, see it for what it is. It's a temptation to trade down. And when you see it that way, it definitely gives you the strength to say no to it. And to get you on the path to walking in victory. Now, as I said, we're going to have to sit tight for a few weeks, I admit, till we get to Romans chapter 12. Um, we'll get to the practical stuff. But I just pray that the Lord somehow this morning opened up our eyes a little bit to see the glory that's ours. I hope you can see it. I, uh, it's been such a frustrating sort of adventure. Because I see something that I can't put words to. But, ooh. So, Lord, would you please open up our eyes to see this, that this, this glorious destiny to which you have called us. Father, forgive me for 
trading it in along the way for cheap thrills. Lord, forgive me.